0: mentioned Thursday nights, Epiphany has to do with something being revealed, something being manifested. And so throughout the Sundays of Epiphany, and this year we actually get several, which is nice, we focus on texts that reveal things about who Jesus is and why he came. Which is why it's disappointing that oftentimes this text, Luke chapter 2, the boy Jesus in the temple, usually just gets kind of passed over in many ways Many of our churches won't even be looked at this morning. The Bachelor of Jesus often replaces it. But also then, we tend to focus on the wrong things. It becomes something that Jesus obeyed his parents, so children, you should obey your parents. Jesus went to church and so say you should go to church. And while those things are both true, and we'll eventually get to them, they're not the main focus of the text. In fact, I think the hymn does a beautiful job of telling us what the main thing is, is that Jesus is revealed, even at 12 years old, to be the glory and wisdom of God. That is the main focus, that is the main thing of the text, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. First, we're going to talk about the glory of God, and I want to be clear, the glory of God is a massive concept we could spend days talking about, we're just going to focus on one aspect of it, how Jesus reveals it here. We have to understand from understanding this text rightly that Jesus Christ is the glory of God incarnate. The glory of God in the flesh from the moment of His conception. As you know, and as we just heard from 1 Kings, the glory of the Lord was found both in the tabernacle and in the temple. God revealed Himself through His radiant glory. This is often, what they would call the Shekinah glory, this bright light of His glory in the Holy of Holies. And throughout the Old Testament, God promises to tabernacle, to dwell with his people. You see the fullness of that promise coming to fruition in the temple as Jesus is the very glory of God in the flesh, going among his people, being in his temple. So 1 Kings 8 said, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now if you remember... (laughs) The glory of the Lord eventually left the temple. In fact, Ezekiel has this very striking vision of just watching the glory of the Lord go out, go out the gates, go out up the hill, and leave. But the promise was that the glory of the Lord would return to his temple. It happened several times during Jesus' ministry. First, when he's a baby. Here, when he's 12 years old. And then, of course, at the end of his ministry, before he's crucified. In the New Testament, we're told very clearly, for example, Colossians 2, For in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, then he must be the glory of the Lord in the flesh. The glory of the Lord bodily. And where is his glory most clearly seen? Where do we see it? It's most clearly seen as he had to be about his father's business, or literally, his father's things. Right? Everything, every part of the temple, every single piece of furniture, every part of the building, everything pointed to Christ and his work. All of this. It was all built because of him. The sacrifices that took place pointed to him. Every single aspect of the temple, and all that went on there, was to point to Christ's and his work. And so he had to be about his father's business. And what was that business? Jesus needed to teach, he needed to intercede for sinners. He needed to make a sacrifice for sinners, so that he might bless sinners. I pointed out many occasions, but it's worth pointing out again. If you look at our crucifix, Christ's hands are sitting on the cross there form the blessing. Right? From the shape of the pastor uses when he puts the blessing upon the congregation. To show this very truth. That he made a sacrifice of himself so that he might bless you. He must be, Jesus says. It is necessary for him to be about his father's things. To be about his father's business. He must be doing those things. That is the reason he came. He must do these things. As I said, the season of Epiphany focuses on some of these key points in his ministry and his life that reveal this glory of God that is hidden from our sights, as we just sang. It's hidden from us. Unless we have ears to hear what the Word of God says. Unless we listen to what it says to us about Him being revealed there. Right? I mean, the same thing happens in the Holy Supper. Right? All we see with fleshly eyes. Is bread and wine, and all you taste is bread and wine, yet we hear the word of God that says, This is my body, this is my blood. So we confess it must be true. Exactly what we have going on here. No one will look at baby Jesus in the manger, no one will look at 12 year old Jesus sitting among the teachers and say, Wow, look at the glory of God radiating off of him. He must be the Messiah doesn't work that way. That's why even in art, right? Even in Christian arts, we have to put symbols around Jesus so you know, oh, that's Jesus. Right? So he even gets a special kind of halo with a cross in the background. The holy trinity marked out behind his head so that we know when we're looking at it, oh, that has to be Jesus. Because looking upon him, no one can see it. It had to be revealed. It had to be revealed to us through God's holy words that there... In a temple, in 12-year-old flesh, was the very glory of God. And that is something I think that should just kind of blow our minds, to consider that the glory of God was present again in his temple, but it was in a 12-year-old boy. Because I guarantee you, you've never looked at one 12-year-old boy and thought, wow, maybe the glory of God is concealed in him. You've never thought that. And yet, there's Jesus, and it's true of him. 100% true. The fullness of God is dwelling bodily, and that 12-year-old boy for you in your salvation. Because of that, we also have revealed here that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. It's kind of a funny scene, right? Joseph and Mary are like frantically searching. Right? Like you can imagine a parent frantically searching for their child. People are often confused. Well, why? How did they lose him to begin with? Well, they traveled in a large caravan, and they would meet up at certain points. And they thought Jesus was other relatives and friends. They weren't worried about him. He's twelve. He's practically a man. They weren't worried about it. But they get there, he's not there. So they frantically search here and there and everywhere. They're worried about him. They're anxious, as Mary says. But Jesus is just sitting among the teachers, and they're amazed at how he listens, the questions he asks, and the answers he gives. Now, for the text to say that he's sitting among them, in our language, that would be like he was invited up to the podium with a professor, or he was invited to be on the expert panel. They're so amazed that he's being treated like a teacher at 12 years old. Again, not to pick on 12-year-olds, but none of you have ever taken a 12-year-old, put him in your midst, and asked him to teach you all of his wisdom. This never happens. You haven't been blown away by a 12-year-old and said, he knows more than anyone I've ever met. And yeah, that's exactly what happens here. The Lord is, even in this, though, being subservient. He's not just the best teacher, he's the best student, as he asks questions. He's recognized by these teachers to be something more than just a 12-year-old boy. Because a 12-year-old boy should not know these things. He should not have this profound understanding of the Bible. I would like to imagine with my holy imagination that he's explained to them what the temple's for and how it points to him and what he's come to do. Let me consider, Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament are both known for their wisdom. So much so, that they're placed above entire nations to use their wisdom that God had given them to help those nations, and yet their wisdom pales in comparison to the wisdom his twelve-year-old boy is showing them in the temple. Solomon before Jesus was the wisest man who had ever walked the face of the earth, and yet Solomon used his wisdom for wicked ends. Christ is greater than Solomon and every wise man that came before him, for Christ is wisdom incarnate, even at 12 years old. He is the teacher. He is the wisdom of God in the flesh. So Paul will say, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. All of that's bound up in the flesh of a 12-year-old boy. One of the best passages in the Bible that shows Christ as wisdom is actually Proverbs chapter 8. It's short. You can go home and read it relatively quickly. And it's a beautiful summary showing that the pre-incarnate Christ Involved in creation and also as the source of all wisdom in the entire universe. And that same one is there in the flesh, 12 years old, sitting among and teaching the very best and brightest of God's people. So Paul elsewhere, elsewhere will say, But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, redemption that as, as it is written, he him like in glory in the Lord's. Now I think all of this is really important, seeing him both as glory and wisdom, first of all, to see that who he is. But then second of all, to see what it means for us, where he talks about what it means for our salvation, that he had to be among these things. Because it is most clearly seen in his death suffering and death, that is where his glory is revealed. In doing these things for our salvation, in saving and rescuing you. It's important for us to see Him as a wisdom of glory of God because the Bible tells us repeatedly to seek wisdom, to chase wisdom, to be wise, and that indeed these things are our glory. Now, wisdom in the Bible to our seen is completely centered in Christ Jesus. And wisdom is God's gracious gift to you does not mean you come up with on your own. does not mean you just have. It's God's gift to you that you might both hear and understand his word and live in accordance with it. And it indeed is the power of the gospel that empowers you and makes you wise. Because the love of God in Christ Jesus is how you obtain wisdom and live wisely. In fact, in the Bible, you can't separate righteousness and wisdom. We like to do that. We like to think that perhaps maybe be wise and not righteous, but in the Bible they're bound together. The person who's truly wise is righteous. Because they're been righteous in Christ Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is indeed making them righteous. So then the Bible opposite of the wise person is a fool. And the fool isn't just someone who does stupid things, or acts stupidly, or foolishly, or like an idiot or something like that. The full first and foremost in the Bible is one who does not take heed, who does not listen, who does not believe, who does not act in accordance with God's holy words. They think they can do it all on their own. They think they can figure it out on their own. So their lives reflect this foolishness. Wisdom at its core, then, is hearing God's word, believing God's word, and acting in accordance with that same word of God. So Proverbs says that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Which takes us back to the first commandment <coughs> that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That is the fount, that is the source, the beginning of wisdom. And as it says in the gospel, that we're given these things. In the gospel that were made righteous and given to Christ's righteousness is the gospel that empowers you to be wise and keep the commandments. So, as you grow in the faith, you grow in the faith by being renewed in your mind by the Word of God. That's why we have Romans 12 as our epistle reading for this morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As you spend time in God's words, your mind is being renewed. It is being transformed. Rather than being conformed to the thoughts and thinking and ways of the world, as you receive God's word, it's transforming your mind to be more like Christ which, by the way, is why it's so utterly important that we have and support our little school. It's why it's important for parents to make sure their their children have a Christian education, whether that's through homeschooling or through Christian schooling or whatever. Handing our children over to people that are going to teach them the opposites and conform them to this world is not good for them. It's not helpful to them. It's the opposite of what Paul says here. It's also why Bible study, while we have so many Bible studies at our church throughout the week, is why we're to be reading our Bibles in our homes. Because it is changing us. It's transforming us. It's why the Word of God is the very center of the divine service. It's why the liturgy, if you look in the side column, right, shows you all the verses that the liturgy comes from. Because it is that word of God that is transforming you, that is shaping you, that's making you more and more like Christ. And so it is through faith that you receive righteousness, knowledge, and wisdom from Christ. And the Bible says that is your glory. Therefore, Paul says, you must always consider all these things in light of what? The mercies of God. The love of God poured out for you in Christ Jesus. Wisdom is always grounded in Christ and who he is and what he's done for you first and foremost. That is the beginning of wisdom. As you receive those things, as you fear, love, and trust in those things. So that wisdom is always grounded in God's holy words. It is utter foolishness. It is, as Ecclesiastes calls it, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. To reject the word of God. And you conform yourself to the thinking, to the ways, to the pattern of the worlds. It will destroy you. It will destroy your faith. It will destroy your children's faith. So the call goes out to the out the Bible don't be a fool. Right? Throughout Proverbs, you have wisdom personified as a lady, right? Because the word for wisdom in both Hebrew and in Greek is feminine. So it gets personified as a woman, and she often calls out, don't be foolish, come in and learn from me. Receive my gifts. And as you receive those gifts, you are able to prove, as Paul says, you are able to see for yourself that God's wisdom is indeed the best, that it is right and true and good, that it alone is true and everlasting wisdom so that as we prayed for in the collect, that you would see things rightly, and know them rightly. It's interesting, because Paul, right after talking about all of this and being transformed in your mind, he immediately says, this will show itself in two ways. One, in how you view yourself in relationship to others. That is, how you humble yourself to love and serve the neighbor. As he goes on after the passage we read, to explain in great detail what that love looks like the love and service to your neighbor. Right? Wisdom is not just some kind of head knowledge. It is something that shows itself as you understand the gifts God has given you and how they're to be used to serve your neighbor and to serve the church. Paul says that's what the transforming of your mind leads to. And so Luther, he said, if you know all commandments perfectly... You'd be the wisest person on the face of the earth. Right? You'd be able to see and understand and know what's going on around you and how to evaluate it properly. You would truly know good and evil, the way Adam and Eve were supposed to before they sinned. That is, you can judge, you can discern, you can make an evaluation based on God's word and act in accordance with God's word, whatever the situation this is also why Proverbs is so extremely helpful. It's why the table of duties are in the Catechism. So that you can see, so you can know, what this looks like day in and day out in your everyday life. I don't care what your vocations are, or what your jobs are, you need the wisdom of God in those things. If you want to know how to be a good employer or employee... You need the wisdom that flows from God to know how best to do those things. It's equally true, right? To are a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, a grandparent, a child. It does not matter. You need the wisdom that flows from God. You desperately need it. You need it day in and day out. Because there's a lot of foolish people around you And a lot of fools on the television, the radio, everywhere, that are trying to confuse you and make you foolish like them. So we must continue to be transformed, other newness of our minds by God's holy words. Consider too, as I mentioned in the beginning, while it's not the main point of the passage, it is there. You see, this wisdom and action of Jesus, not just in His teaching of the teachers. But in the fact that immediately afterwards, he goes down, and even though he's the creator of the universe and knows more than them, he submits to Mary and Joseph. I mean, it's one thing to have teenagers in your home that think, right? All children kind of think when they start getting older, oh, we know more than our parents. It's one thing to have that. It's another thing to have God in the flesh who actually does know more than his parents about everything. Was even indeed their very creator. We see this practically in regards to the Holy Family and keeping of the Third Commandments. I mean, consider, if Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, the glory and wisdom of God in the flesh, thought that it was wise to be in church, thought that it was wise to be among his Father's word and things, how much more do we need it to be wise? How much more we desperately need the things that are there. So if you think about it, Mary and Joseph right? this up everywhere. Kept looking for Jesus, couldn't find him, and he ended up being right where he was supposed to be. It's the same thing for you. The people of God week in and week out, you find Jesus exactly where he's supposed to be. In each sermon, in each reading of scripture, each service, in those things, you find exactly what Mary and Joseph were seeking. We find the very presence and voice of the living Lord. So to be wise. We have to seek out. We must find Jesus where he promises to be. He's still found being about his Father's business. Being about his Father's things. He's still found in word and sacraments. That is where the very glory and wisdom of God are found for you. In those things where he promises to be found. So don't follow your own vain ideas of what you think you should be doing or where you think you should find him, but attend rather to the wisdom of God that's found in his very holy works. It is given to you in your mouths as you receive his body and blood. Because the glory and wisdom that they found in the temple, in the flesh of Jesus at 12 years old, is here for you now. And it's these things that will make you wise, that will transform your mind, that will glorify you. So in the end, you can ultimately be glorified with Jesus forever and ever. So rejoice that at 12 years old, Jesus revealed himself for us to be the wisdom and glory of God. And let us pray that we might see that wisdom and glory exactly where Jesus says it will be, in his word and sacraments. Let's pray that they would be for us our glory. That they would indeed make us wise. That it would give us what we need, the wisdom to live day in and day out under God's holy words. We know that He's still doing this. He must, He said, be about His Father's business. And He is. He's doing it right now. Amen. The peace of God passes on your standing. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.